Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. A lot of you have probably heard of the term pay it forward. Pay it forward. Um, about 10 years ago on Facebook, there was a movement called the Karma Experiment. It got about 100 million members in 39 countries. And this is their mission statement of the Karma Experiment. Okay, It says this, it's an international kindness community that exists to serve and support thousands of local organizations and millions of kindness advocates throughout the world. So what the karma experiment, experiment wanted to do was for people around the world to do random acts of kindness to make the world a better place. So, if, and, it's, and why is it called the karma experiment? Because it's kind of like this. If you do a good deed to somebody in kindness then maybe it'll come back and it'll benefit you. But if you don't do a good deed of kindness, maybe something bad will happen to you. So you better stack up a bunch of good deeds of kindness so that you don't have bad karma. So who in our world doesn't want to be kind? I mean, you've heard the thing, kindness kills. Um, We want to be kind. So tonight, we're going to talk about kindness. So let's go to Galatians Chapter 5, what, what, what's the difference that we're going to talk about? Because almost all world religions, almost everybody on the planet has some type of golden rule. What's the golden rule? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you, which in other words, be kind, be nice, okay? But this is one of the aspects of the fruit of the Spirit So we need to make sure we understand exactly what kindness is. So we're in Galatians chapter 5. We're in verse 22, where we've been the past weeks here. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there's no law. Kindness. Okay, so let's just define terms tonight, and hopefully this is working tonight. What is kindness? I'm going to make a statement here, and I think you would agree with me. That there is a difference between, quote, being nice and what we're talking here as spirit-empowered kindness that's actually a fruit of the spirit. Okay, so for example, let me give you an example. Kindness is more than just having good motivations. Okay, so let me give you an example. On Facebook, those of you that are on Facebook, when it's your birthday, what do people do? They post on your wall or they say happy birthday to you. And you get like all these, all day your Facebook's blowing up with happy birthday. And it's kind, right? It's kind for people to remember your birthday. And the reason they remember your birthday is because Facebook comes up with a notification that lets them know. You probably wouldn't know other people's birthday unless Facebook told you, unless it's like a close family member. Okay, So it's kind to wish somebody happy birthday on Facebook. But what's a greater gesture of kindness? to go to great lengths to maybe throw them a surprise birthday party, invite all their friends, organize something, and then have a big event where you give them a lot of presents. Both of those are kind, right? One doesn't take a lot of work. One takes a little bit of intentionality. So 
you can have kind feelings and you can have motives of kindness, but you really actually haven't practiced kindness until you actually do acts of kindness. So why do you show kindness? You show kindness to someone because there's a Kleenex behind you. You show kindness to someone not because you have to do it as a duty, but because you want to do it even if it costs you something or you don't receive anything in return. So kindness is often related to generosity. So kindness is more than just, hey, I'm going to do a random act of kindness. It doesn't cost me anything. I can wish somebody happy birthday on Facebook. That's a kind gesture. Biblical type of kindness goes deeper with real action and real gestures, and you do it even if you don't get anything from it. What, what is the, how does the world practice kindness? Like, what was the karma experiment? Why is it called the karma experiment with kindness? Why are they doing it? To build good karma so that you can have good things happen back to you. Christian spirit-fueled kindness is, I'm going to serve you, I'm going to help you, even if I don't get any benefit out of it. Even if it costs me, I'm still going to do it. Now, what we've been doing every week, before we actually look at what kindness is and how we are to practice it, we go back and look at the kindness of God, okay? So I'm going to not introduce a word to you because if you've been around Emmanuel long enough, you know what this word is. So we're practicing social distancing tonight, and I don't want you to spit on your neighbor when you say this word with me. But the most significant word in the Old Testament for God's kindness is chesed. Chesed. You got to get that little in there. If you have a King James Bible, yeah, make sure you got your plexiglass as you say chesed. Um, yeah, we have plexiglass between all the, the seats here that tonight. So some of you may have a King James, and the word, the word used there is loving kindness. Um, the ESV transfa- translates it steadfast love. Um, but hesed is probably the best word to, to talk about God's kindness. And do you remember, we talked about this, um, I think it was last week when we talked about patience. God is slow to anger. In that same passage of scripture where God shows up to Moses and, and, and shows him his backside glory because he can't see the full glory. In Exodus 34, 6, I said this is like the John three sixteen of the Old Testament. This is where God reveals his character to Moses for the very first time. And this is repeated all throughout the Old Testament. You have that word there. The Lord, this is Exodus 34, 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in, there's that word, steadfast love. Has said, kindness, loving kindness, steadfast love. So the Hebrew word has said, or has said, it describes God's, and I use the word tenacious. What does tenacious mean? God never lets you go. 
It's God's fidelity. It's God's resolve to remain in a relationship with sinful people. It was this powerful, it's a covenant love. It's, mo- it's the most beautiful and powerful expression of God's unfailing love for sinners um, in the entire Old Testament. So that word has said, loving kindness, steadfast love, is one of the chief characteristics of God. And we see that repeated in the Old Testament. So, for example, in Psalm um, 136, 1 through 4. Psalm 136, it's repeated over and over again. Has said, has said, has said. It's like you go through the whole one. I didn't put the whole psalm up there because it's just it gets repetitive, but that's the point. Give thanks to the Lord, for he's good, for his hestead, his, his hestead, his steadfast love. <laughs> I made up an English word. Steadfast love and hesed is hesed. No, it's his, his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, his steadfast love endures forever. To him alone who does great wonders, his steadfast love endures forever. Over and over again in that psalm, his steadfast love endures forever. His, his kindness endures forever. So how long does God's kindness endure? Forever. Forever. Good job. I heard Penny forever. You were listening. That's awesome. Forever. Psalm 145, 17. It says this, The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is kind in all of his works. So we're talking about the kindness of God. So it's a... It's related to love. It's related to patience. That's why the fruit of the Spirit kind of mingle together. So if your Bible's still open to Galatians, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, steadfast love, patience, kindness, these, these are all things related to the character of God for us and how we are to respond to others. So um, Isaiah 63, 7, I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord. The praises of the Lord according to all that the Lord has granted us and the great goodness to the house of Israel that he's granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. The abundance of his steadfast love, his steadfast love endures forever. The Lord is kind in all of his works. So a lot of the Old Testament word that captures kindness is that Old Testament word has said. Translated loving kindness, steadfast love, the kindness of God. Now, let me just stop and and ask you a question. Is this a kindness that God is obligated to give? Is it a kindness that we deserve? Is it a kindness that God chooses to give us in spite of our sin? Okay, so if that's the kindness that God shows towards us, that's going to start helping us think about the kindness we need to extend to others. Okay? Now, we looked at this last week, too. It's the same verse, but it's got both patience and kindness in this. Romans 2.4. Do you presume upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? We looked at this last week when we were talking about patience, but this week we're talking about kindness. It's the same verse, the same concept, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. We're going to come back to this verse later on. God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Okay, so I will preview and tip my hand because we're going to come back to this later on. What's the opposite of God's kindness? 
wrath. Okay? So if God shows you kindness instead of wrath, what should that lead you to do? What does the Bible say here? Repent. To look at that kindness, of, look at that has said, look at that kindness of the Lord and say, God, you've been so kind with me. You have not obliterated me off the planet Earth. You haven't shaken me to the core with, with wrath. You've spared me through Jesus. That leads me, your kindness leads me to repentance. Okay? And then Ephesians 2, 4 through 5. We've got a bunch of different words that Paul uses to describe God's love. Okay, Ephesians 2, 4 through 7. But God, being rich in mercy, okay, rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Okay, look at all the words he throws there together. Immeasurable riches of grace in kindness. What's immeasurable mean? Can you measure it? Okay. It's a, if, you, if you can't measure, what's he saying? You can't measure the riches of God's grace. Who's the richest man in the world? You guys know? Or at least the richest man in America? You guys know who the richest man in America is? Jeff Bezos, the owner of Amazon. I don't know what his net worth is, but it's something like, what, 14 billion or, or 35 billion? Something, something, something billion. Okay, he can go to his stock portfolio, he can go to his accountant and say, show me what my balance sheet is, and you can measure his wealth. Okay, what happens if it's unmeasurable? It's wealth upon wealth upon wealth, and we're not talking about material riches, what are we talking about here? The riches of his grace in kindness. What does that verse say was our, our situation before God showed that to us? What does it say we were? Even when we were what? Dead. We were spiritually dead. We were separated from God. We were dead in our sins and trespasses. God made us alive because of his great kindness towards us. Okay? Titus 3, 4 through 5. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. How did God save us? With his loving kindness. Okay. All throughout the Old Testament, it's the word has said, God's loving kindness. Here it talks about his riches of kindness. His loving kindness. So let me just ask you a question. You don't have to answer this out loud. This is just a thought-provoking question for you tonight. How has God specifically, that's the key word there, specifically, how has God specifically shown his kindness to you? And then second part of the question, how does that affect how you treat others? Stop and think about that for a moment. In what specific ways has God been kind to you? That may be an exercise for you this week to maybe spend some time alone with the Lord and just write down the specific ways God's been kind to you.
And then if there's a lot, a lot of ways God's been kind to you, then you need to think about, okay, if God's been this kind to me in so many ways, maybe that should be a motivation for me to be kind to others. Okay? Now, we're going to look at two examples of kindness in the Old Testament. We're going to look, I wish I could spend all night on my favorite Old Testament book, one of my favorite Old Testament books, and that's Ruth, Ruth and Boaz. If you guys remember, I preached that sermon series back in 2008, I think. It was in the old building. Um, that was one of my favorite sermon series because it's the greatest short story of all time. We're not going to have a chance to look at the entire book tonight, but let's turn to the book of Ruth. So Joshua judges Ruth. 1 Samuel, it's after Judges, because it takes place during the time of the Judges. Let me just give you a little backdrop. One of the key words that shows up over and over again in the book of Ruth is the word kindness. Okay, so what's the Hebrew, Ruth's Old Testament? What's the Hebrew Old Testament word for kindness? Chesed. Okay, so Ruth, the ESV, is going to translate the word kindness. It's the word chesed. So what's the issue? There's a famine in Bethlehem. Do you guys know what Bethlehem means? House of bread. There's a famine in the house of bread. And so the grass is greener in Moab. Where's Moab? Moab is a pagan nation east of Israel. And so this man named Elimelech and his wife Naomi... And their two sons, Maclon and Kilion, they go to try to find a better life in a pagan culture, which is a problem. Instead of trusting in the Lord and waiting in Bethlehem, they took matters into their own hand and he, and he packed up and left his wife, or not left his wife, packed his wife and sons and, and moved to, to Moab. And as he gets to Moab... Elimelech dies, her husband dies, and her two sons die. And so she's a widow with two daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah. Now, you never hear from Orpah. What does Orpah do? Orpah just basically takes off and goes back. Do you guys know what Orpah means? Orpah means back of the neck because all you see is the back of her neck walking away. There's a lot of cool things happening in the book of Ruth. Okay, So house of bread, Bethlehem. And so Naomi is basically, she, she's become a bitter woman. And when she goes back to Bethlehem, all of her friends greet her and say, hey, Naomi's back. And she's like, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, which means bitter. Okay. So what does Naomi tell her daughters-in-law? What does she tell Ruth and Orpah? She says, you are still young. I'm a widow, I'm an old lady, I'm an Israelite, I'm going to go back home to Bethlehem. You're young spring chickens, why don't you stay here in Moab and remarry? And Orpah, back of the neck, says, okay, I'll stay here. But what does Ruth do? Okay, let's pick up in Ruth chapter 1, verse 8. Okay. Actually, let's pick up in verse 6. Ruth chapter 1, verse 6. Then she arose with her daughter-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. 
But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept, and they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I'm too old to have a husband. And then on and on and on. But then you get down to verse 16. And this is where Ruth basically has this famous statement of where she's going to show kindness to Naomi. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything put deaths between, or death, put, but death parts from me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Okay, so without going into a lot of detail, this is Ruth's conversion. This is where Ruth goes from a Moabite pagan woman to say, I'm making the decision to show kindness to my mother-in-law, and I'm going to go back to Bethlehem, and I'm not going to leave her side. I'm going to stick with my mother-in-law. Where she goes, I go. Where she lodges, I go. Her God's going to become my God. I'm going to embrace the God of Israel. And so from the very beginning, you see Ruth as this noble woman of kindness that very easily could have stayed back in Moab, remarried, and lived in her pagan idolatry. But she shows kindness to Naomi and says, I'm going to stick with you no matter what. Now, think about Ruth for a moment. Does she know anything about Bethlehem? Has she ever been there? So she's going back as a foreign woman. Now, you guys don't know, how to, do you guys know how Moab formed? Anybody remember how Moab, how the, the nation of Moab came about? You remember Lot, Abraham's brother? That wasn't Abraham's brother, it was his nephew, right? <laughs> Lot, <laughs> gotta get my, Lot had incestuous relationships with his daughters and one of their childs was Moab. So, if you were a Moabites, okay, so if you were a woman from Moab, in the eyes of an Israelite, you were automatically considered a foreign, pagan, not-so-great woman. You were automatically going to be deemed a harlot or some type of foreign woman. So, Ruth's coming back with the possibility of her very character being questioned just because she's a Moabitess. She could face racial prejudice. She could face all types of things as she comes back. Okay? So we know what happens. Naomi says, why don't you go out and glean in the fields? There's the whole gleaning where the poor people in Israel could go behind uh, the fields and they could go to the corners. And they could, it was basically the welfare system in Israel. And so she's out gleaning in the field. And Boaz, the generous man, the godly man, sees Ruth and basically... I hate to use the word is attracted to Ruth, but he, he is attracted to her. But he's attracted to her um, not because she was an attractive woman. It's more because of um, her kindness to Naomi. So let's pick up in chapter 2 where Ruth meets Boaz. Um, so let's just pick up in verse 8, chapter 2. I know we're going real quick through, through Ruth here. 
Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you've done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to take refuge. Then she says, I've found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I'm not one of your servants. Okay, a couple things here. Boaz says, listen, you can glean in my field as long as you want. And I've, I've notified the young men out there not to touch you because you're a young, attractive woman. And you don't have to go all the way across the field to drink the water. Drink the water here. And what does, Naomi, what does Ruth say? Why are you showing such kindness to me as a foreign woman? You don't need to do this. And what does Boaz say? It's because you're a hot woman? No, what does, he, what does he say? I've heard about your kindness to Naomi, your commitment to Naomi. It's your character, Ruth, that's drawn me to you. That's why I am taking notice of you because you're a godly woman. And then in verse 13, she says, you've spoken kindly to me. You've shown me kindness in a very practical way. Because back in that time, this is during the time of the judges. What was going on in Israel during the time of the judges? We don't know exactly when Ruth takes place during the time of the judges, but all manner of wickedness was going on. Um, And it was out on those threshing floors and out on those fields. um, It could be very vulnerable for a foreign woman who has a reputation just because she's a Moabitess to possibly get raped or attacked. And so Boaz is protecting her from any type of harm. He's noticing her because of her testimony. And then... There's this whole thing where she gets to eat, eat lunch with Boaz, and he gives her basically um, this 30-pound bag of, gra- of grain. So when Naomi sends Ruth out on the very first day to glean, what does Naomi expect? Yeah, she'll just come back with a little bit of stuff because that's usually what happens when you go out and glean. Well, providentially, she meets Boaz, and Boaz gives her this huge bag, like way more than what she expects. So now, Ruth comes back home with this huge bag, and, and, and Naomi's going to be like, whoa, what's going on? So let's pick up where um, <laughs> it's kind of a foreshadowing here. So let's go to verse um, 17, chapter 2. So she gleaned in the field until evening, and then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. Okay, an ephah of barley is about three-fifths of a bushel or 22 liters. I think it's probably close, according to my notes, 30 pounds. That's a pretty big bag of grain, okay? And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? 
It's like, whoa, this is, a, this is a lot of food you brought back. Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, this man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Okay, Naomi had no idea that Ruth was going to run into Boaz. It just so happens under God's providence, Boaz is what they call a kinsman redeemer. He's a man that's close in line that could possibly marry Ruth. He can't quite yet because there's somebody closer, but when she comes home with this 30-pound bag of, of grain, what does Naomi say? Blessed be the man who showed you kindness. What did Ruth say to Boaz? Why have you shown me this kindness? So kindness here in the book of Ruth is based upon real actions. Boaz actually gave her something, 30 pounds of bag, a 30-pound bag of grain. It's, it's demonstrable with action. It wasn't just good intentions of kindness. It was actually backed up in real types of, of generosity. So think about kindness also being linked with generosity. All right. So in chapter 3, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail. This is where it gets a little interesting. There's a threshing floor at night, and she goes and lays down by his feet. And basically, she asks Boaz to marry her. Uh, which is a little out of unconventional. And then he gets up and says, I, you know, I, 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 don't, there's, I can't marry you because there's actually somebody closer in line. Um, but let's just pick up in chapter 3, verse 10. So um, he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You've made this last kindness greater than the first and that you've not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there's a redeemer nearer than I. This kindness, he says there, is greater than the first. Okay, what's the kindness here that's greater than the first? What was, what was Naomi's, I mean, what was Ruth's first kindness? to not remain in Moab and come back with Naomi. That was her first kindness. Okay, what's the second kindness? She has not gone out after younger men. She's remained pure. And so she doesn't flirt. She doesn't try to hook a man. She's not going after a guy for sex or for money. She remains pure. She remains a noble woman. Um, and, and so there's tension in the story because she basically says, she throws herself out there and says, Boaz, will you marry me? And he's like, I really wish I could, but there's somebody in line in front of me. Well, you know the rest of the story. He, he goes and he talks to that guy and there's the whole sandal thing that goes on. And basically the guy that's first in line gives up his rights and then Boaz is able to go in and Boaz actually marries Ruth. And so the ultimate kindness at the end of the book of Ruth is that Boaz is able to redeem in a special way by marrying Ruth and by extension taking care of Naomi. So everything comes full circle where at the beginning, 
Ruth shows kindness to Naomi. Boaz shows kindness to Ruth. Ruth shows kindness to Boaz. And at the end, Boaz shows kindness to both of them by marrying Ruth. And who is in Ruth's family? So go down to chapter 4 and pick up in verse 17. They have a child. Ruth and Boaz have a child. Verse 17, the woman of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. So who's David's grandmother? Ruth. Do you guys know who Boaz's mom was? Rahab the prostitute. Rahab the prostitute was the mother of Boaz. Ruth the Moabites was the great-grandmother of David. Both those women show up in Jesus' genealogy in Matthew. All the women that show up in Jesus' genealogy all have shady pasts. Bathsheba, Tamar, Ruth, Boaz's mom, and then Mary. Obviously, I mean, nothing impure with Mary, but there's people are wondering, like, how can you have a virgin birth? So, interestingly, the whole point of the book of Ruth, among other things, but for the purposes of tonight, is this whole idea of kindness being shown. Um, and if you really want to see a portrait of how husbands and wives and how godly men and women are to relate to one another, the book of Ruth is a very interesting book that, that shows that. It doesn't necessarily teach it like outright. You just have to kind of read the story and, and you see it illustrated. So that's the first Old Testament example of kindness. Now, the second example of kindness is, and I want to give you a trivia question, if you can spell Mephibosheth without looking. Anybody know how to spell Mephibosheth? You can't pronounce it. You can't even spell it. So um, anybody ever heard of Mephibosheth? It's one of those biblical names. So King David, remember what happened to King David and Jonathan? They were what? All right, let's, let's go backtrack in history. Who was the first king of Israel? Remember last week we talked about Saul? Was that last week where he was impatient? Was that last week where he was impatient and he came and did the sacrifice when he wasn't supposed to? Okay, Saul's the first king of Israel. Who's his son? Jonathan. Okay. So technically, who would be the next in line to the throne of Israel? Jonathan. Okay. David and Jonathan formed a very good friendship. This is even why Saul was trying to kill David and hunt him down. And so back in 1 Samuel 20, chapter 20, when Saul's trying to kill David, Jonathan comes and warns him because he knows his dad's kind of crazy. And we find these words where Jonathan requests that David shows kindness to his descendants. Because Jonathan knows his dad's end is probably going to be soon and that if David becomes the king, which rightfully he, he was, anointed by, by Samuel, um, he wanted his children to be taken care of. So in 1 Samuel 20, verses 14 and 15, Jonathan says, If I'm still alive, show me the, what's the word, steadfast love? 
has said, kindness, show me the kindness of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. Okay, so what is, so Jonathan basically dies. And what was the promise that Jonathan asked David before he died? Please show kindness to my family. Okay. Saul was wicked to David. When David, when Saul and Jonathan were dead, what could have David done to all of Saul's family? You guys are out of here. You were my arch enemy. But what promise did he make to Jonathan? I'm going to show kindness to your descendants. So let's pick up in 2 Samuel chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. And this is um, David showing kindness to Mephibosheth. So if you go back to 2 Samuel... This is long after Saul has died. David's been anointed king of Israel. The ark's been brought back to Jerusalem. David has victories. David's in charge. He's the king. And so in 2 Samuel chapter 9, the word kindness, which we would translate has said, shows up three, three times. It's the key word in this passage. So um, let's read 2 Samuel 9, 1 through 13. As a matter of fact, in the ESV, there's the uninspired heading that says David's kindness to Mephibosheth. Is that kind of what yours says? Okay, so let's read this. This is after Jonathan is dead. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Remember the promise that he made. Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there still not someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? And Ziba said to the king, There's still a son of Jonathan. He's crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Well, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amuel at Lodabar. Then king David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar, And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I'm your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear. I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should regard you should have regard for such a dead dog as I. Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servants, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. 
Now he was lame in both of his feet. Okay. You see the word kindness show up multiple times there. So what does this passage, first of all, teach us about Mephibosheth? Well, first of all, he's physically handicapped. In verse 3 and in verse 13, we find out he was crippled in his feet. Now, why is that such a detail? Well, if you go back to 2 Samuel 4, 4, Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in haste, he fell and became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. So here's what happens. When, when Jonathan's out on the battlefield, Mephibosheth's nurse, when he's five years old, they're trying to rush out of there. She probably trips on a rock or something. She drops the five-year-old boy and basically dashes his feet probably on a rock where he becomes crippled. Okay, so he's been crippled since about five years old. In chapter 9 here, he's probably around 20. So he's a young adult. So he's, he's physically disabled. Which, okay, if you're, think about, think about this for a moment, back in that culture. If you're physically disabled with crippled feet, did they have wheelchairs back then? Probably had to walk around with crutches. Okay. Now, so, number one, not only is he physically disabled, but the second thing is, is where is he living? He's living as an exile. He doesn't know if David's going to come kill him, so he's hiding out. And he's hiding out in a place called Lodabar. Lo means no in Hebrew. Dabar means place or thing. So where is Lodabar? (laughs) No place. He's living out in the middle of nowhere as a handicapped exile, probably in fear that if he's discovered that he's from Saul's family, King David would surely kill him. So what, where's, Meph- where's Mephibosheth living? He's living in no place as a crippled young man, disabled, and he's probably living in fear that David's going to kill all of the descendants of Saul. And so what does David do? David goes to Ziba and says, Hey, Ziba, is there anybody left in Jonathan's family that I can show kindness to? I, want to sh- I made a promise to Jonathan before he died. I'm going to show kindness to his family. Is there anybody left? And Ziba says, as a matter of fact, there is. Mephibosheth. The handicapped young man living out in the middle of nowhere in fear. And David says, bring him here. And we see David do three things, three very specific things to show kindness to Mephibosheth. So three acts of kindness that David shows Mephibosheth. So number one, he grants him protection. Look at verse 7. David said to him, Do not fear. I'm not going to kill you. For I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. You're no longer an enemy. You don't have to fear. You don't have to go live in Lodabar. You, you can come under the sovereign protection of the king. I'm going to show you kindness. Don't fear, Mephibosheth. I'm not going to kill you. I'm going to protect you. And then, secondly, the second act of kindness is he grants him 
provision. What, is he, what else does he do there in verse 7? I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. He's going to get the inheritance of the land that he thought he would never have. All of the inheritance of your grandfather Saul, you're going to get, Mephibosheth. Where's he been living? Who knows? Out in the middle of nowhere, in fear. And then thirdly, David grants him a new position. What does he say? You're going to eat at my table. You're not going to eat in servants' quarters. You're going to eat at my table as if you're one of my sons, as if you are part of the king's family, and you will always eat at my table. So it meant that he no longer had to live as an enemy exile in no place, frightening that he would be found out and killed, but now he could have the position and privilege of eating at David's table forever. So David shows Mephibosheth kindness in three practical ways because he made that promise to Jonathan. He says, I'm going to protect you. You're not going to die. Number two, I'm going to give you back all your land. And number three, you're always going to eat at my table. Those are very specific ways that David showed Mephibosheth kindness. Now think about David for a moment. What does the Bible say about David? He's a man after God's own heart. What's God's heart? God's heart is to show kindness. And that's what David does. So we have two examples in the Old Testament of kindness. You have Ruth, Boaz. The word kindness shows up a lot in that scripture, that book. Then you have David's kindness to Mephibosheth here in 2 Samuel chapter 9 where the key word kindness shows up. Now, those are two examples of kindness. Let's look and see what the Old Testament teaches about practicing kindness. What is the Old Testament? Before we get to the New Testament, what is the Old Testament? We're still in the Old Testament here. What does the Old Testament teach us about kindness? So Jeremiah 9, 23, 24. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. There's that word again, steadfast love. So if you're going to boast about, like, what do you, what do you say? Don't boast in your wisdom. Don't boast in your might. Don't boast in your riches. What are the three things that the world boasts in? Knowledge, power, riches. And he says, if you're going to boast anything, if you're going to glory anything, glory that you know who I am. I am a God who shows hesed, kindness. And if I am a God who shows kindness, then you need to be a people who do the same. Micah 6.8, you probably have heard this. He has told you, old man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to what? Love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. To do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Zechariah 7.9, thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. This is Old Testament. Show kindness and mercy to one another. Okay, let's look at a few Proverbs. 
Proverbs 11, 17. A man who is kind benefits himself, but a cruel man hurts himself. A man who is kind, a woman who is kind. And then Proverbs 19, 17, kind of similar word there. Whoever is generous, there's kind of the root word kind to the poor, lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. Okay, so let's just backtrack here. Kindness is more than being nice. Kindness is the ultimate character of God who shows, has said, who shows loving kindness. It's his very character to show that. He's not obligated to show that, but he shows that to us because he loves us. Two examples of kindness in the Old Testament, Ruth and Boaz, David and Mephibosheth. The Old Testament tells us to practice kindness. Okay, so let's move out of the Old Testament. Let's move into the New Testament. And let's just look at one example. We probably could go to a bunch of examples of how Jesus showed kindness. Okay, the kindness of Jesus. Let's go to Mark chapter 5. And this is actually part of four stories that kind of weave together the way Mark tells it, but um, I'm just going to focus on one aspect of the story, and this is the woman with the issue of blood, and I'm going to explain what that means here. So let's, let's turn to Mark chapter 5. So Jesus is really on his way to um, heal Jairus, this official, to heal his daughter who's died. And as he's on his way to heal Jairus' daughter, he has an encounter with this woman. Okay, so let's pick up in Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 25. Mark 5, 25. There was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had, and she was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the report about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I'll be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it, but the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Okay. When she had a discharge of blood, the way it's worded in the original language is that it was a hemorrhaging, flowing stream or river of blood. Now, let me explain to you what this is. Okay, I'm going to be very frank because we're all adults here. Okay. How long had this been going on? Twelve years. Okay. I can't comprehend this, but women, you can. Okay, I'm just going to say it the way it is. It's a 12-year period. Menstrual cycle, never stopping. Okay? Now, back then, not only was this physically painful for her, but according to the rituals of Israel at the time, if you were on your period, women, what did that mean? You were ceremonially unclean. You could not go into the synagogue. You could not go in the temple. You could not worship with the community. So not only is she suffering physically, but she can't be with the people of God in church. 
And what has she done? She has tried doctor after doctor after doctor. She spent everything she had. And notice what it says there. Verse 26, she'd suffered much under many physicians. The word suffering there is a really strong word that Mark uses. It really means like a lashing or a beating, like metaphorically. She, she, she'd experienced 12 years of being beat up by this disease. And what does she do? She thinks, I'm not even going to bother Jesus. I'm just going to touch his garment. Because if, if I just touch his garment, that could be enough. So what does she do? She touches his garment, and what happens? Power goes out of Jesus. And what does it say? Immediately, it dried up. The blood dried up. It's like immediately. And Jesus turned around and said, who touched me? Like, think about all the crowds pressing on him. It's like, who touched me? Because he knew power had gone out from his disciples. Like, what are you talking about? Well, she took a great risk because she doesn't know what, how Jesus would have treated her. So she comes in fear and trembling, and she bows down, and she's like, it was me who touched you. Now, she took a great risk because she's ceremonially unclean. She's a woman that probably nobody wanted to be around. She's desperate, and she comes and she touches a man in public, and she has no idea how Jesus is going to turn around and treat her. But let's see what Jesus did. So she feared the consequences of defiling or polluting a holy man by touching him in her unclean state, yet instead of a rebuke, Jesus meets her with tender compassion. What does Jesus say to her? What's the kindness there in verse 34? He said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Why does Jesus say go in peace? What has she not experienced for 12 years? Has she had any peace? (laughs) 12 years of pain and sorrow and discouragement. And in an instant, Jesus says, I'm healing you. Go in peace. Her greatest need in that moment was peace physically, but also the peace to know that Jesus would meet her need. And so Jesus showed ultimate kindness. Now, interestingly enough, we don't have time right on the heels of this because Jesus was on his way to Jairus' daughter. How old was Jairus' daughter? She was 12 years old. So she's 12 years old, and this woman has had her issue of blood for 12 years. So that's just one example of kindness that Jesus showed this woman. Okay, so you've got the kindness of the Lord that has said. You've got Ruth and Naomi and Boaz, the kindness in that, in that book of the Bible. You've got David's kindness to Mephibosheth. You've got Old Testament passages teaching us to be kindness, to love kindness, to practice kindness. You've got Jesus as the ultimate example of kindness. Ultimately, dying on the cross is the ultimate example of kindness, but I'm kind of giving you one of his, his examples here when he, before he died. But let's talk about enemies of kindness. Now, when we talked about love, I gave these same three enemies. So I'm going to give them to you again because I think a lot of times these enemies keep coming up. What are the enemies of kindness? Okay, enemy number one, busyness. I'm too busy to be interrupted. What could have Jesus have done? I'm on my way to heal a girl that's dead. Don't bother me by touching me. Did Jesus do that? I mean, we can't picture Jesus doing that. A lot of times we don't practice kindness because what are we, what are we just too busy? 
I really don't want to be interrupted. I've, got, I've kind of got an agenda. I'm too busy. I'm not, I'm not, that's not on my radar screen, to be kind. Okay, another enemy, selfishness. I need to keep things to myself and focus on my own needs. I really don't want to be kind to other people because it's really all about me. It means I have to risk. And then another enemy is complacency. This is where I see the needs around me, but I don't care enough to do anything about them. These all weave together. Busyness kind of weaves into selfishness, kind of weaves into complacency. These are all enemies. These are all enemies to all the fruit of the Spirit. Why don't you practice fruit of the Spirit? Bottom line is I'm too busy, I'm too selfish, and I'm too complacent. And may I say those three things are sin (laughs) if they prevent you from doing the will of the Lord. Okay. Now, as we get to practical application tonight, I want to share three ways to practice kindness in your life. And the first one is going to be probably the one you probably wouldn't expect. What's the first, what's the first way we can show kindness? Number one, evangelism. Evangelism. Now, why would I put evangelism as a kindness? Here's what I wrote. Here's what's on your screen, on your sheet. The kindest thing we can do is to warn people of the reality of hell and share the gospel with them. Think about that. The kindest thing you can do is tell somebody there's hell and that they need Jesus. So what's the opposite of that? What's the most unkind thing you can do? The most unkind thing you can do is not to share that, okay? So here's, I'm going to get into a little theology here. Is hell real? Is hell reserved for those who die in their sins without Jesus? Okay, listen to what Jesus himself said in John 3.18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. You're condemned already if you don't believe. What does that mean? It means if you're condemned already, what does that mean? You're born in this world condemned. You will die in this world condemned. And what does condemned mean? You'll face condemnation, which is judgment in hell. So you're, every person's already born under condemnation. How do you come out from that? You believe in Jesus. So what's the most kind thing we can do to somebody who's under condemnation? Tell them they're under condemnation and they need Jesus. Okay, I'm going to go back to that passage we looked at earlier. And I'm going to give you the full context of Romans 2, 4, 4 through 6. I just gave you Romans 2, 4, but I didn't give you the full context. So let's go, but this, is, this is what we looked at earlier, but let me give you the full context. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Okay, that's where we've stopped, but let me just keep going. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. 
God's kindness is meant to lead to repentance. What happens if you don't repent? You're storing up wrath for the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So what's the most kind thing you can do? Let me, let me say it this way. The kindest thing you can do is to tell people about God's kindness that leads them to repentance so they can avoid hell. Okay. And then just one other passage of Scripture on this whole evangelism as kindness. 1 John 5, 12-13. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may, have, that you may know that you have eternal life. If you don't have Jesus, you don't have life. So people need Jesus. So one of the primary ways to show kindness, and we may not think about this, we often think of kindness as I just want to be nice to somebody. Probably one of the most profound ways you and I can show kindness to others is to tell them about Jesus and warn them about the dangers. Because God's kindness is meant to lead them to repentance. So number one, evangelism. Number two, a way to practice kindness is through forgiveness. Forgiveness. Okay, Ephesians 4, 31-32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Paul says, put it away. Put these things away. Literally, the way it's written, the way Paul writes this in the original language is like these things that he lists are like a pile of trash. And he wants you to get a broom and sweep them out of your lives. And so what are these things that you're supposed to sweep out of your lives to get away? Well, he gives a list. Okay, he says, get these things out of your life. Bitterness, deep resentment. It's like a cancer that eats at you. James 3, 14 through 18. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not wisdom that comes down from above, but it's earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Get rid of bitterness. Secondly, he says, get rid of what? Wrath or rage. This is an outburst of anger, blowing up with violent anger. Get rid of that. And then third, he's got the word anger, which is a little bit different. This means more of a steady, festering, or seething anger that builds up pressure over time. It's kind of like that volcano that's... And eventually it's going to explode. It's kind of that, that seething anger. And then he says clamor. Okay, clamor means shouting, screaming, yelling. And it could actually end up with physical fighting, um, being physically hurting each other. And then he talks about slander. Slander um, is, the, is the word blasphemeo. We get our word blasphemy. It really means to assassinate one's character, to backstab, to gossip. And then he just ends it with malice, which is kind of a catch-all word, meaning you really want the worst for someone else. So he says, get rid of all those things. Sweep them out of your life. Instead, what does he say? Be kind to one another. Forgiving 
one another. Okay. If you have your Bible open to Ephesians 4, if you just want to go back to it on your, I don't know if I, if I want to go back to it on the screen here. What, how does it end? How is this different than just being nice to one another? Because we've got to root this in the gospel. So just, I mean, you can look on your sheet, but, but let's, I just want you to see it with your own eyes. That Ephesians chapter 4, it's very important that we understand how Paul grounds this command. Okay, so Ephesians 4, 32. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, okay, it's a command, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, okay, be kind, be tender, forgive, okay, now let me just stop right there, does every other world religion have something like that in their dogma or doctrines? Do Buddhists tell you to be kind? Do even Muslims say forgive others? Is the atheist out on the street wants you to be nice to others? The karmic spirit, okay. Every world, religion, every system has some type of golden rule that tells you to be kind and to forgive. But notice what Paul says. How does he end it? He doesn't just say, be kind, as God in Christ forgave you. That's what makes it Christian. That's what makes it different. This is how this is truly Christian. How this is different than just a list of good works that all religions basically hold to. I mean, Buddhists teach that you need to be nice to one another. Most world religions call you to love one another. What makes this truly Christian forgiveness, Christian kindness, Holy Spirit kindness, that it's rooted in the cross of Christ. We forgive because God in Christ forgave us. Now, I've told this story many times. It's the story of Corrie Ten Boom. You guys know who she is. She was, um, during World War II, uh, she was in a concentration camp with her sister Betsy. Um, her sister Betsy died in the concentration camp. But as she's in the concentration camp, there was this wicked officer who would beat her and yell at her and basically just mistreat her. They would actually have to parade naked across the thing. This is at the Ravensbrück prison uh, concentration camp during World War II. Okay, Corrie Tim Boom gets out. Her sister dies. She gets out. She's a strong Christian. She goes around Europe giving her testimony about how God gave her grace through the concentration camps. So she's in Munich in Germany, and she's up front, and she's talking about forgiveness. She's talking about how the Lord forgives our sins and takes the, the sin as far as the east from the west and casts it at the bottom of the ocean. And, and, and she's talking about forgiveness and how God forgave us and we need to forgive and how God's been kind to us. And then it gets, you know, the service gets finished after she shares her testimony, and she sees this balding man walking towards her. And she begins to get into shock. Because the man that's walking towards her was that prison guard that used to abuse her. And he's coming towards her. And he gets up to her and he says, Fräulein, that was a great message on forgiveness. And she's frozen. She doesn't know what to do because this is the man that used to make life literally a living hell for her. And he says, I want to tell you something. 
the message you taught tonight is very, very true. God has shown me kindness. God has forgiven me. I'm a Christian now. And I need to ask your forgiveness. Will you forgive me the way I treated you? And she says in that moment, it was hard for her to reach out. He reached out his hand to say, will you forgive me? And she said her hand didn't want to go out and forgive him. But then tears came down her eyes and she said, I forgive you because Christ forgave me. Okay. Is forgiveness easy? Some of the hardest things we'll do as Christians is to forgive. But the way we forgive is because Christ forgave. That's the only way you can do it is because Christ forgave. So how can you be kind? You're not just kind to be nice to other people. No, you're kind to others because God has been kind to you. God has shown you, has said. God has poured his riches of grace upon you. Christ has forgiven you. That's why you can forgive. That's why you can be kind because God's been kind to you. And that's the motivation. That's the Holy Spirit motivation for you to be kind to others. Paul says it again in Colossians 3, 12-13. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Okay, so number one, how can we practice kindness by evangelism? Sharing the gospel with others. What's number two? Forgiving others. Okay, here's number three. This is often what we think of when we think of kindness, and this is serving. Serving others. Doing acts of kindness in tangible ways to serve others without any reward or any type of thing to get paid back. So Galatians 6.10, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are the household of faith. Do good to everyone, especially those who are other believers. So when you have opportunity, do good. Be kind. And especially be kind to your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what Paul says. Okay, Colossians three seventeen through 23. This is an interesting passage of Scripture. Whatever you do, in word or deed... Do everything in the name of Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Okay, so let's stop right there. Whatever you do, okay, what does that mean? Whatever you do. And Paul says, let me define it for you even further in case you don't understand it. In word or deed, what are you to do it in? Do it in the name of Jesus. So whatever you do, you're doing it as if you were doing it like Jesus would. Okay, let me give some examples here. Wives, submit to your husbands as fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents and everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, this is back when, um, you know, in that culture where they were slaves, that we can kind of relate this to employees, employer. Obey in everything. Those who are your earthly masters, not by the way of eye service, as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Okay, so look at the book in here. Verse 17. Whatever you do, 
Do in the name of Jesus. Verse 23, whatever you do, do it for the Lord. So if you think about those two things together, let me just ask you a question. This will help be kind of a grid for you to think about kindness. What would I do for people if I were Christ? How would Christ show kindness in this situation? If I, this is kind of like the what would Jesus do? If I were Jesus in this situation, how would I treat people? Okay, if I were Jesus. Second question. What would I do for people if they were Christ? How would I treat the least of these? It's two questions, right? If I were Jesus, how would I treat them? And if they were Jesus, how would I treat them? It makes you stop and think about how you treat people for a moment. Because what does Paul say here? Whatever you do, do it in the name of Christ. Whatever you do, do it as you're working for Christ. Now, let's just, in closing here, turn to Matthew chapter 25. And I could spend a lot of time on this about what it says and what it doesn't say. But for the sake of time, I'm tying this into kindness, not about eternal judgment. But this is the sheep and the goats, the final judgment. And so let's read this. And I'll give a little bit of teaching on this to kind of tie everything together tonight. Is everybody there? Matthew 25, 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then will He sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another as shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on the right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, and feed you, or thirsty, or give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed to the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Okay. What this passage of scripture does not mean is that you're saved and you go to heaven or hell depending on how good a person you were in treating other people. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Okay. What this is saying is that evidence that you are a Christian means it will be proved out in how you treat others. And not just generally, but notice what he says there in verse 40. 
Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did it to me. So it's really more how you treat your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And the interesting thing about this parable is, is that they're shocked, aren't they? Like, when, when did we do this? And Jesus says, whenever you did it to the least of these. And what types of examples does he give here? Well, I was hungry. Okay, what's the kindness if somebody's hungry? You gave him food. I was thirsty, you gave me a drink. I was a stranger, you welcomed me. I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick, you visited me. I was in prison, you came to me. Now that's not an exhaustive list. But Jesus is saying, back to what I said earlier, how would Christ act in these situations? And how would you treat other people if they were Jesus? And what does Jesus say here? Whatever you've done to the least of these you've done to me. So, why do we show kindness? It's not to earn brownie points with God and make sure we get to heaven. We show kindness because of the kindness that God showed us in Jesus. That has said that God showed us when he didn't have to serves as the motivation. Let's keep everything back to the fact that this is part of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. So it's not something you produce in yourself. It's not something you can muster up. It's not something in your flesh. It's something the Holy Spirit has to do. So in order for you and I to be kind, the Holy Spirit's got to produce that in our hearts. He's got to birth that in us. He's got to cultivate it in us. It's his spiritual fruit being birthed in us. So the more you think about God's kindness for you, the more that will be a motivation for you to be kind to others. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do it all in the name of Christ. Okay? Any questions tonight on kindness? Again, I thought I was going to have to do two in one night, but I was able to milk it for an hour and such and such minutes on kindness. Questions? Yes, Dennis. Oh, yeah. 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 Yeah, what Dennis, yeah, the Amy Coney Barrett hearing is that she's part of some weird group that says the wives have to submit to their husbands. Like what it says in the Bible. Yeah, that weird handmail, handmaid's tale cult. That, but they, like he said, they didn't talk about how husbands... Yeah, that's a whole other discussion about husbands and wives, but there's a dual responsibility there for the wives to voluntarily submit to their own husbands and for husbands to graciously love and lead their wives. But yeah, it's kind of funny how foreign that type of language is to the world. It's like, what are you talking about? Anything else? When I was in retail back in, when I was in college and right after I first got married, I worked at a department store and I was the, I wasn't the store manager, I was the customer service manager, which meant that the store manager didn't have to deal with all the crazy, I had to, I did, had to do the hiring and firing and deal with all the customers. <laughs> it's like, okay, that is a great job. And so um, <laughs> the, the, the store manager said, okay, here's our mantra. 
If they get mad, just kill them with kindness. Kill them with kindness. Just be, if they yell at you, just keep being kind. And so um, there was a couple of situations where this French guy came in, and he bought a bathroom scale, one of those like bathroom scales. And he started cussing at me in French, and he was like wanting to attack me with the, with the bathroom scale and everything. He's yelling at me. And I just sat there calmly and just uh, listened to him. And the whole time I'm thinking, kill him with kindness, kill him with kindness. I thought he was going to kill me with the bathroom scale. But anyway, um, I don't know what that has to do with kindness, but did it what? Yeah, for some strange reason, you can ask Dawn this. She's not here to verify it. But um, when people get volatile with me, for some strange reason, I've, I found that I'm pretty calm. I don't, I don't know how God's done, done that. I, I usually don't get riled, but I don't. Yeah, he calmed down because there was a counter between us. I had a biker one time wanted to go out and beat me up in the parking lot afterwards because I wouldn't return a TV that was defective after two years. He's like, I don't want to, when you get off, I'm going to meet you in the parking lot and all this kind of stuff. So anyway, is that turned off or is that still on? I'm still on. Biker out there, I forgive you from 1993 or whenever it was. All right, you guys ready to call it quits for tonight? All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for your kindness, uh, your loving kindness, your said, uh, Lord, we don't deserve it. You are so kind to show us grace in Jesus. And as Paul says, it's the, it's the immeasurable riches of grace in your kindness towards us in Jesus. Um, immeasurable. And Lord, when we think about how much you have shown us kindness, help us to be kind to others. Lord, help us to share the gospel with those that need to hear about your kindness that leads to repentance. Lord, help us to have the grace to be forgiving and tenderhearted. Lord, help us to serve others in practical ways to the least of these by doing acts of kindness that may cost us. We may not get anything in return, but we do it because it's, it's what you've called us to do. So, Lord, we can't do this in our own power. It has to come through the Holy Spirit. So, Holy Spirit, would you grant us the grace to practice kindness? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.